Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Holy moly, and welcome to episode 4-306 of the Run Run Live podcast. It's Chris, your host. Man, it's cold. As I write this, we haven't been above freezing for over a month, and we've had six feet of snow in the last 30 days up here. I mean, I like winter as much as the next guy, but I'm getting a bit weary of the continuous blizzard cane that is New England. Since we talked last, I did a uh, I did take a trip to Atlanta and I got some some warmer weather there. I got some nice long runs in. I came back from dinner one night and said, "The heck with it. I'm heading out." And ran from Buckhead all the way up to Midtown down Peachtree, and I was out for a nice hour and 45 or more and which is about a half marathon for me or a little bit more at an easy pace. And everybody else is walking around in winter coats and hats, and there I am chugging down the sidewalk in shorts. Up here where we live, I've been banished to the treadmill, or as Jim says, Satan's sidewalk. When I'm writing this right now at 12 noon, and it's a sunny day, it's 10 degrees Fahrenheit with a stiff wind. I'd have to put on so many clothes to run in this, that it's it's like a whole load of laundry every time you go running. And it's super dangerous on the roads right now because the roads are all narrowed by drifting snow and the snowbanks are so high that the drivers can't see over them. So they just, they just pull out and pray. <laughs> I've been, yes, I've been doing a bunch of treadmill running and that's why I have a gym membership. Actually, I think I have two. Believe it or not, I ran over three hours on the treadmill last Sunday. Yeah, that's crazy. I'm I'm starting to get a uh, a reputation at the at the gym. People see me come in. I'm like Forrest Gump. So Buddy's going bonkers. He's trapped in the house. I think he's ready to revolt. And as Mary Rose says, he's gone shack wacky. <laughs> if I could do the accent, I would. But the days are getting longer. And it will only be a couple weeks, and we'll be back out in the woods, splashing through the melting mud and breathing in the good earth. So, my friends, I see you there. I see you sitting on the couch in your pajamas, in front of a warm fire, eating a large jar of Nutella with a spoon. You have to cut that out now, because we're only months away from beach season. Come on, get up, let's go. In today's show... We have another guest interview. Longtime friend of the show, Greg Milborn, has an interview with a gentleman named Jed Carmen. Now, Jed had one of those near-death exercise experiences that we all fear, but he turned it into fuel for his life. And there's a lot to be learned from this conversation. I always wonder, why does it take a big impact occurrence like this to get us to see how lucky we are, and to get us to really appreciate life. This life is right there in front of you today. As you sit in your pajamas, feeling sorry for yourself, eating a Nutella with a spoon, we don't have to wait for the firm touch of fate to shake us out of our reveries. It's right there. 
So Greg and I have been corresponding since the beginning of the Run Run Live podcast many, many years ago. And since I think he's a mental health professional, I'm pretty sure it's part of some long-term study on manic depressives that he's doing, and I'm one of the uh, the study participants, unknowingly, of course. In the running stuff section, I'm going to take a deep dive into some of the finer veteran points on hydration and fueling. In the deeper thinking section, I'm going to talk about fierce conversations should be a great show. Hey, we're seven weeks out or so from Boston, from the Boston Marathon. And yeah, I'm running. But I've decided not to run another marathon in the intervening time. I got too much going on. I'm not going to be the fastest runner at Boston, but I'm going to have a hell of a base build up <laughs> with all the miles I've been doing. I have signed up for the Eastern States 20-miler, put on by our old friend Don Allison, who we've spoken to on the show a couple of times. And they fixed the bridge this year, so we'll be back to running the old course that starts in Maine, runs the full length of New Hampshire, and ends in Massachusetts. And I love that route. And let's see if I can stay within myself and, and run it strongly. The nice people among you have been trickling donations in for my Team Hoyt campaign. Keep it up. I have some ground to make up to make my goal. It matters. I give you my stunning good looks and my brilliance, and you give me donations for my Hoyt campaign. And frankly, I think you're coming out ahead on this deal. <laughs> yeah. It's it's hard to walk in the snow when it's this deep, right? I had to dig a trench for the dog to get out and do his thing. I had to dig a tunnel to my wood pile. I had to dig a tunnel around the house so the oil guy could deliver the oil. And I'm hoping all this shoveling is some sort of good cross-training or conditioning. But the good news is that the zombies get stuck in it, too. And you can just whack them on the head with the snow shovel. On with the show. Come on. Let's have some fun. Let's go for a run. Okay, my friends, this is going to be fun. Race Hydration Deep Dive. This week, I'd like to go a little bit deeper on the race hydration topic. I got some feedback that I wasn't quite clear. I'll try to be clearer by doing what engineers do best. Pile up more information in the hopes that a really big pile of unclear information will somehow create a small slice of lucidity. I also realize that, like every other grumpy old guy, I've got a different frame of reference, and I have to do a better job of putting myself in other runners' shoes, if they wear shoes. My frame of reference, rightly or wrongly, is from 20 years of training and racing marathons. I've forgotten what it is like to be running that first race and experiencing the overwhelming physical sensations of those first couple long runs. I remember clearly my first marathon, and it was a warmish day. And I thought I had trained well, but in reality, my training was laughable. In the first five miles, I took a big glass of Gatorade from a water table. They they weren't called aid stations back then. And it made me sick to my stomach. And I decided I would just not drink or eat anything after that. And by mile 17, of course, I was done. I was hallucinating. I don't remember finishing, but I did. And I learned many lessons that day, and one of them was that you have to fuel and hydrate to race a marathon, or you're probably going to crash and do the death shuffle. After that first disaster of a marathon, I started training for real. And part of that training was drinking 16 to 24 ounces of half-strength Gatorade every 40 minutes. I figured out that I could stomach it if I mixed it half-strength. I learned how to run carrying a bottle in one hand so I could constantly be pulling a few gulps of fluid every few minutes. I trained and learned the specifics of how my body required hydration and fueling by long hours of practice. I learned my machine. Make no mistake, I was 100% compulsive neurotic about having my bottles and mixtures and having them right for every run. And it was only later in my career that I lightened up a bit and was able to go with the flow and color outside the lines when it came to fueling and hydration. Because eventually I learned my machine so well that I found where the edges were. When I say 
drink when you're thirsty. What I mean is, in my head what I hear is, drink when you need to drink. And I can do this because of my experience. I know my machine well enough that I know when it's time to take a pull off the old water bottle. That's when I'm thirsty. In order for others to heed that particular advice, they have to run and train and race a whole bunch of miles to understand the requirements of their own machine when their own machine needs a drink. And there's a balance. You can take in too much and make yourself sick. You can take in too little and make yourself sick. It depends on your intensity, your duration, and the conditions. I know my sweat rate under all different levels of effort and conditions. I know when I'm quote-unquote thirsty or when my body needs something. So let's unpack that hydration box a bit and add some color. Again, from my frame of reference, I'm not a medical professional of any kind. And my point of view is looking out from under an overwhelming pile of long miles over 40 years of running. What I really do believe, though, is that people focus too much on what they eat and drink while racing. If I look at what has the most impact on my race experience, it is hands down the quality and volume of my training, not anything I put in my body. And I know this is probably politically incorrect and disappointing to you, but the quick fix is to train better. Let me say that again. The biggest impact variable that you can control is the quality and volume of your training. There's a very common rule of thumb marathoners use that you should always have your tank topped off. And I think that's a potentially dangerous message because that stay full message will lead people to overhydrate. And one critical difference we have to take into account in this conversation is the difference between running and racing. When I say racing, I'm running at or near my threshold, even in a marathon. I'll be in zone three or four the whole race. And in that last 10K, I'm up in zone five, zone six, you know, it's pretty much maximum effort. That's quite a high effort level. And it requires a fair amount of quality training to be able to sustain that across that time. And if I'm racing, I honestly won't be able to keep up with hydration or fueling. And we'll be fighting a losing battle. I'll finish one of these races down five to eight pounds. The trick when you're racing is not to stay topped off. Because at that level of intensity, you cannot. The trick is to limit the damage. The trick is to get to the finish line before the plug gets pulled. If I'm racing, I know I can't keep up. Instead, I'm trying to stay close. To do this, I'm taking a slug of fluid out of my bottle, about a mouthful, every few minutes. And at room temperature for me, at that effort level, I'm going to be taking 20 to 24 ounces of fluid every 40 minutes to an hour. And if you do the math, for a three-plus-hour marathon, so like between three hours and 3.30, that's 60 to 80 ounces of fluid, or four or five pounds of water. That's what I'm consuming in a race that I'm racing hard, and at the end, I'm still down five to eight pounds at the finish. If it's colder, I'll need less. If it's much hotter than room temperature, I'll need more, but I'm probably not going to go for it in a race where the temperature is higher than 75 to 80 degrees Fahrenheit, because I'm just not designed or acclimated for that kind of heat. I'll supplement my bottles with whatever they're handing out on the course if I feel, based on race conditions at that point in time, that I need more or less. If I get to within a couple miles of the finish line, I may even toss my bottle, because at that point, whatever I eat or drink is not going to have any impact on my finish time. I'm better off lightening my load, putting my head down, and gutting it out. But that's racing. You may not be racing. You may be running at a much lower intensity. And I know I sound like an elitist, but I'm, that's not my point. <laughs> my point is that three hours of intense racing is much different than five hours of intense racing or six hours of not-so-intense run walking. It's all different, right? And I think for mid-packers or back-of-the-packers, it's a different and more dangerous challenge because you're out there that much longer. You may or may not be racing at the same intensity, but you're out on the course much longer and may or may not have done the level of quality training. The stakes are higher. 
I think for you folks, you really need to be careful and stay focused on what you're eating and drinking. I would caution against focusing on topping off the tank because that can easily be mistranslated as forcing fluids. It's a much bigger risk if you're going to be out there a long time. The three-hour marathoner is going to be back in the hotel room before the problems with hydration manifest. The five-hour marathoner may have these problems manifest on the course. The best advice I can give you is to train well, whatever that means for you and your ability. As you go through your training, you'll figure out when you need to drink. You'll figure out when you need to eat. And yeah, you may learn that by going too far in one direction and learning that hard lesson that I've learned plenty times. That's how you find out where the edges are. And finally, I want to address one big, hairy, maybe controversial thing that I've learned. And that is that it's okay to go into deficit. If you train your body to expect a bit of deprivation, it gets better at husbanding its resources in response. I know this sounds antithetical to some people, but you can go into fluid and fuel deficits in your training, and your body will get better at absorbing the stress, working through that stress, and recovering from that stress. Yes, what I'm saying is you can train the process of becoming a bit dehydrated and then recovering. This is not a beginner protocol. This is something you can do if you've got the miles under your belt and you know your machine. And the overwhelming stern warning here is that you should be familiar with the symptoms of serious dehydration. If you stop sweating, if you start getting chills, if your heart rate spikes or starts palpitating, if you're seriously nauseous or dizzy, these are bad things. If you get these symptoms, you need to stop and get help. Ultra-endurance athletes are also privy to another secret that no one ever talks about. And that is that it's possible to recover from dehydration and fueling deficits in a long race. You'll see these guys and ladies laying on the ground unable to move. They're done. They're toast. And they'll patiently load fluids and fuel and get up and keep going 20, 30 minutes later because they've trained their bodies, their machines on how to do this, how to do this recovery. And I'll give you an example. When I rode that Wilderness 101 mountain bike race, I screwed up big time and forgot to fill up my camelback and was caught without water for over an hour of pedaling through technical trails, up mountains, at midday in the July sun, and it wasn't pretty. But I was able to recover and finish that race because it was a 12-hour race, and I know my machine. Think of it as just another training element and just another tool to learn as you mature through your running adventure. That was fun, wasn't it? Thank you for indulging my Uber Geek Fest about hydration. And now for today's featured interview. Judd? Hey, Greg. Hey, Judd, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Great. I'm doing well, thanks. Just to introduce myself a little bit, my name is Greg Milborn. I'm a psychologist and a runner outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I've been listening to the Run, Run, Live podcast and uh, Chris Russell for a bunch of years now. I've been in intermittent email contact with him, and, and Chris asked me to interview a friend of mine who has a pretty interesting story that I think would be fun for the uh, listeners of Run, Run, Live to um, check out. So, Jed, if, if you don't mind, uh, why don't you give us the 200 words or less on who you are and what you do? Sure, Greg. So thanks for having me on, and I'm excited to talk with you. So I'm Jed Carmen. I live in uh, southeast Pennsylvania in Swarthmore. I was born and raised up in the Boston area. And for family, I have a wife and three kids, three boys, so really active lifestyle. And for work, I am uh, working for a technology company. I've been doing that for the last 20 years. Uh, so just a very active overall work and personal lifestyle. You and I got to know one another because um, on Tuesday and Thursday mornings, uh, we get up pretty damn early to head out to the track and, and exercise. Why don't you, you uh, say a few words about our group? Yeah, so we've got a group that um, it's a varied group, but we get together you know, at, a, at an early hour on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and it's focused on plyometrics and also on track work. And so there's about anywhere from you know, 8 to 12 of us to get together 
twice a week. You know, a couple main things come out of that. I mean, the first thing is you get a workout in, you get a sweat in, you have some fun. But then also there's just the benefit of, you know, the camaraderie and the joking around and all that, all that fun stuff that comes along with it. So it's, it's a really cool thing. You know, we take turns in terms of who, who runs it. So it ends up being, you know, pretty creative and pretty fun some days. Yeah, I I, uh, I had a great time this week. We did um, a two-mile, one-mile, half-mile, quarter-mile, and then 100-meter uh, interval. There was a new guy out. He just seemed to, like, attach himself to my hip there. I Every time I felt myself lagging, to kind of pick it up to, to keep with this guy. And every time I tried to, you know, get a little bit ahead of him, he, he would just stay right there with me. And, and I wound up, you know, doing all those intervals that you're supposed to do a little, each one a little bit faster, even though you're getting more and more tired and finishing, you know, with a big old smile because, you know, I pushed myself a heck of a lot harder than I would have if I had just gotten that workout from, you know, somebody and said, Hey, go to the track and and do it on your own. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, if, if you go and work out solo, it's tough on those cold days or wet days, it's the bed looks really attractive. So um, (laughs) it's a great, it's, it's a great thing. I mean, you have, yeah, people out there, all shapes and sizes, and we're all pushing each other. There's some super fast guys that you know you try to stay with, and it's it's definitely in the last couple of years of doing it, I've improved my speed. I've gotten faster on certain races, so I mean the results are great, but the camaraderie is really cool also. When I got to know you, you were rehabbing from an accident that uh, literally would have kept 99 out of 100 people in bed or a wheelchair or some other uh, scary place. You want to just give a little bit of the story about what you were recovering from? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Something I never expected would happen, but it definitely gave me good perspective, and I've I've come out on the other side as it's helped me grow. So what happened was, I mean, I've always been an athlete. I've always, uh, you know, played soccer, basketball, you know, got into running maybe five, seven years ago. Uh, And then I started getting into triathlons, uh, about three or four years ago. And the, the triathlons would start out as a short race, and then I'd move into the Olympic category, and then I finally worked up to doing a half Ironman. And so right after a half Ironman, um, it's actually coming up on my two-year anniversary in, in uh, four or five days. I was Wow, of, of the accident. Of the, of the accident. So a couple of years ago, uh, two, uh, two years ago, almost to this day, um, I was out mountain biking early on the morning and, and ended up uh, going over my handlebars and landed right on my head. I had a spinal uh, compression uh, fracture uh, to C5 and C6. And ultimately what that did is it... So, it so wait, wait, my, in layman's terms, you, you broke your neck. I broke my neck. I had a spinal cord injury and I was paralyzed in the woods. So, Holy I mean, literally you're, you're, you're laying on the ground... You can't move a thing. So it, it um, you know, it opens your eyes and makes you appreciate, you know, the little things, you know, picking your arms up, moving your legs, you know, you know, for, forget running, just, just walking or taking one step in front of the other was, was this, was the goal. Um, so the, the right. quick version of this is that I, I was carried out of the woods by, uh, you know, paramedics and then brought to one hospital, then brought to a more advanced hospital and then uh, still paralyzed, um, you know, wasn't sure if I'd ever walk again. And then uh, had surgery that evening. Um, the next day, I was I was able to get up and and walk. You know, walk is is too liberal of a term. I was able to get up and and put a, a tiny bit of weight on my on my legs. And um, wow. over a course of so you were being supported of, by nurses and stuff. Oh yeah, if I saw you, if I showed you the video of that, it was it literally was like you know a nine month old trying to walk. I mean, it was wow. you'd have legs going sideways and your butts going out, and you know it it, it wasn't pretty. So, um, but that was the start. And then you know the next day you, you you stand up. The next day you you walk to the bathroom. The next day you're down the hall. The next day you're down the hall twice. So you just you just you just bite it in pieces. And um, and then over a course of the next month to two months, I got to walking, and then they gave me the sort of the release papers to say, you know, um, you, you are a very small, small minority of people that uh, now has a full recovery. So, um, you know, really, really wow. fortunate, but it, but it puts a whole different perspective on things. 
I've had the the honor and, and privilege of running with you actually on the on the trails where this all happened and and hearing the story and you shared that there were a lot of important people along the way that 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 helped you in your in your treatment and your recovery and you, you mentioned um, an experience you had with a doctor when you when you got to your your rehab you you want to talk talk a little bit about that guy. Yeah, I mean, are you talking about the when I first was admitted into the rehab and, and the conversation? Yeah, and and, and you got, you kind of said, you know, look, I just did an Ironman, uh, you know, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna beat this thing. And what what did you say he told you? Yeah, so I mean, just 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 picture. I mean, I think everyone who listens to this has you know is either very Type A or has a lot of Type A in their blood, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I was exceptionally Type A. Um, you know, that doesn't change. You just change your perspective. But so I, so I get through the hospital and I'm starting to walk a little bit and I am, I'm on cloud nine. I mean, I'm walking like a three-year-old at this point, but I'm on cloud nine. I'm thinking I got this I'm going to get better and better. And I arrive at the rehab center after three days after surgery and the head of, uh, the head doctor there, you know, sits me down and I looked him right in the eye and I said, you know, uh, Dr. Freed, I said, guy, you know, I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to be your best patient here. I am ready to go. You know, give me whatever you want me to do. You want me to do 10? I'll do 20. You know, I am ready. I, I am all in. So he looks at me <laughs> and he basically said, you know, be quiet or shut up. You know, he, I'm not sure what words he used. <laughs> and, and then for 20 minutes, he read me the riot act um, about balance and life and just open your eyes, look at everything. You know, I've got this beautiful wife, these great kids. I have a wonderful family, you know, a great job. You know, it's like, buddy, just relax and enjoy this. And don't just keep marching and marching for the next goal. You know, enjoy the ride a little bit. And yeah, it took him, it took him 20 so, minutes, but that was, that was the message. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a heck of a message. I mean, how, how would you describe, what your life was like before the accident and how do, how do you feel like the accident has, uh, has affected your, your, um, approach to life? There's certain things that remain the same and there's certain things that have changed, you know, pretty dramatically. It's always a, a hard charging, you know, all in personality. And I, I don't believe that's changed, but before, I mean, very driven, very competitive, um, you know, very, um, you know, focused on goals and always looking for the next milestone and just go, go, go. Yeah. And I think, I think what's changed now is, you know, I haven't lost that competitive spirit. I haven't lost the drive. I haven't lost the, the willingness or the appetite to, to get better and better. But uh-huh. the, the big, the big eye opener, the big shift has just been, I, I now can see things that are right in front of me. I can see people, I can see, you know, I could smell the roses. I could, you know, I, I, I just have much better perspective and patience and I would say appreciation of what other people are going through. If they have any sort of challenge mm-hmm. they're experiencing, I have, I have way more, um, just understanding and appreciation for it. Whereas before, you know, I, I think I would have been well more challenged or I wouldn't have even you know seen it as much, um, Right, I, I can say I can I can say that because I've grown beyond it, but I think it's um, that was definitely uh, you know an issue I had a, a shortcoming. I mean, hopefully uh, <laughs> I don't have to, and and the, nor do the the listeners to this podcast have to. But you know, why do you think it it took something so dramatic to help you make that shift? And how do you think you can help other people recognize you know when they're on that? in that trajectory of like more, more, more without slowing down to enjoy what, what's right there with them. I thought about it a lot. I think it makes people sometimes, you know, successful and successful is whatever your definition is. Right. But whatever makes you successful sometimes can be your, your greatest liability. And in, in that case, I think it was, you know, whether if it was, you know, sports or athletics or work or life or the fact that I was so all in, I think was, was a huge asset. Right. Right. But it was over the top. It was it was too much. And um, yeah. So how do other people, you know, deal with it? I, I think, you know, in hindsight, I, I can say that I had to experience it to change. 
Um, other right. other people might be I, other people might have a bit more awareness by watching other people and appreciating, you know, whether if it's a, you know, a parent or, you know, somebody, you know, that's going through, you know, some challenge or some disease or whatever it is, you know, it's, I, I guess it's the classic saying that you don't want to wake up. I mean, I'm, I'm 42, right. You don't want to wake up and be 65 right. and say, man, I should have done, I wish I hadn't have done this. <laughs> and I wish I would have appreciated, you know, my kids, my, you know, my marriage, my friends, my whatever. You don't want to, right? You don't want to. You want to wake up that one day and say, "Man, I wish I had done this." You know, and that's right. It's sometimes really hard for some people. I think it was for me. Yeah. So, you know, some people might say, "Man, you're getting up twice a week real early." Like that. That doesn't sound balanced. How how balanced do you feel like your life is today? You know, and how do you feel like exercise and and competition enhances your relationships? And where do you see you know, you still have kind of growth to do. I mean, I get up, get up a couple times a week to do the uh, plyos and sprints, and then I probably get up another three or four times a week just to go for a run or something. I do get up first thing in the mornings, you know, early, you know, 5 o'clock, 4.30, whatever it is, so it doesn't inconvenience the whole family. So that's that's my way of me getting my fix. You know, it's like my medicine. Yep. You know, first thing uh-huh. in the morning, it's me- it's mental, it's physical, it's the whole the whole deal. Right. I'm sure pe- people can relate to that. It's, it's as much as, you know, getting out and clearing your head as it is, you know, getting the sweat in. Um, right. So I try to balance it that way. So I don't throw evening workouts in as much and because that way you get the family time and you get to fit everything in. Yeah. I mean, I, I still have to balance, you know, because I travel with work. So it's a matter of juggling work and then you want to be home and you want to do special stuff with the kids and with your wife. And then you also want to work out. So it's it is constant priority shifting and just making sure that you don't get too weighted in one direction or the other. So I'm, I'm, I'm much better at that. Right. I could, get even be- I could probably get even better, honestly. Um, <laughs> in terms of, you know, competition, I mean, I, I hate to lose. I really, I hate to lose. <laughs> so, so I, I, you know, yeah, I've tried, I've tried, I've tried to, to race you on some intervals and I know that about you. <laughs> you know how so to find I, another um, gear. You know, so I, yeah, that, that didn't change. And, uh, I'm glad it didn't. I mean, I don't do the same insanity of, you know, being in a couple different leagues of some sport and eating up four nights a week. And I don't do those things. I found other, other outlets. To, I wouldn't say it's the end all be all that it was before. So that's been a bit of a shift where I'm still trying to grow. You know, I guess it's, it's just, it's just the constant balancing. It's probably that piece is, is the uh, greatest area. I mean, I still, <laughs> I mean, from an athletic standpoint, I sh- still want to shave another four or five minutes off my half marathon. I still want to do another marathon. I still want to get my five miler sure. down even, even further. I mean, I have all those goals, those, all those tangible goals. So that, that's all there. But in terms of like the overall big picture, it's probably just making sure that I keep the balance and make sure that, you know, all the plates are spinning and I'm, and I'm not, you know, burning the candle at too many ends. Take a minute to to tell us a little bit about your athletic background. Like, when did you first start to you know compete in athletics, and what what was your first race or individual competition? Probably in the womb. Um, I mean, I've <laughs> as, as as a kid, if there was a ball around, I was chasing it. So, I mean, I was big into soccer. I got it big into basketball. I would do any pickup sport imaginable. It was it was me. It was everything. It was like it was like the nucleus of my life growing up. When I got my 20s, I, I kept playing soccer, different leagues, to, you know, good levels of competition. Even into my 30s, I kept doing that. So I really didn't start actively like uh, heading down the running path until, um, I mean, I'd done a couple races, but it really didn't take it that seriously. It was more just to stay in shape and maybe just throw in a race here and there. So I really didn't take it seriously until maybe, I don't know, five, seven years ago. I, I would say that the the best accomplishment, I mean, beyond hitting some, you know, smaller races and, and hitting really good pace. The mm-hmm. marathon that I did back, uh, I think it was four years ago, that was just yeah. awesome. I mean, that was a huge accomplishment. I nailed the time that I wanted. I know I could do better Which now. Which one was this now? I did the Philly Marathon back in 2010. Okay. And so that was that was cool because that was really – that was the first time – I honestly like really buckled down and trained for something religiously before that. I just would kind of wake up and do it. And so it, Mm -hmm. um, it was just a cool experience to see what it's like to train for 20 weeks, be committed, hit it every day, you know, break it down, 
not go to, you know, not go outside the bounds of what the training wanted and uh, what the plan recommended. And then, and then you go out and you nail it and yeah. hey, you finish the race and you're just like, man, that was awesome. You know, just, it felt awesome. <laughs> it's cool, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was very cool. And I've got, I've got more marathons in my, in my future. I know that I know I can, I know I can beat the time that I got as well. So that's, that that's cool also. Well, hopefully one of these days we'll get a chance to run one together. I look forward to that. Yeah, that'd be cool. You know, the conversations that you can have when just out there for one, two, you know, sometimes two and a half hours, you you just, you start talking about all kinds of things that you never even thought you would share with somebody else. You know what I mean? You know what? That has been the best, like, hidden surprise or hidden gem of the last, like, two, three years, I would say especially the last couple of years, you know, as I was recovering from this accident, I started, you know, running and then running longer. And even when I was doing the marathon training, um, you would, and especially, I mean, you and I have done a bunch of stuff on those Sunday runs, those long Sundays. It's awesome. I mean, you, you don't really walk in knowing what you're going to talk about, but you end up for the whole two hours, just, you know, talking about, talking about stuff and solving all kinds of problems. So it's, it's very, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, I, I always feel like it, it kind of it clears my head and sets the tone. I mean, it's, you know, in the olden days, talk about, you know, getting up and drinking a cup of coffee and smoking a cigarette and reading the paper. I mean, I find it so much more refreshing than that. I come back, I feel like my head's clear, you know, my body's purged of all of its toxins. You know, I'm really ready to enjoy the rest of my day and, and weekend with the family. No doubt. Not a better feeling than doing that first thing in the morning, getting it out of the way. You can eat whatever you want all day, you know. There's no guilt, and uh, and you feel great. Yeah, your, your your mind is clear, your body's good. It's it's all good. If you had any kind of like summary thoughts of lessons learned or things that you wanted to share that that we haven't touched on, that would be nice or or helpful to to folks who are just trying to move their life uh, into a more positive direction or overcome some adversity that they may be facing. The main thing I would stress, I mean, I, I'm a positive person. I've always been positive my whole life. It's that classic saying, you wake up in the morning, you have a choice. You can either, you know, be positive or be, be uh, you know, glasses half empty. And, you know, life's going to throw you all kinds of garbage. And you just got to take it in stride and just go, you know, and figure out what's going to make you happy, what's going to challenge you, what's going to make you grow. You know, life isn't solely about, the overall achievement, you know, that you might achieve, you might, you might get it. It's really how you grow and how you challenge yourself as well. So yeah. I think you're going to, you're just going to, you're going to hit, even when you're not even expecting it, you're going to hit roadblocks and you're going to have friends right. stand right beside you and help you out and pull you out of it. And that's huge. So make sure you nurture the right, the right relationships and then just, just bite things in pieces. Just just chunk it up and stay positive, and you'll you'll run through mountains. I mean, there's no doubt about that. That's a great message, man. Really cool. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed having you as part of my regular uh, workout routine, and I appreciate you making the time to have this conversation and look forward to listening to Chris and the Run Run Live podcast. Yeah, thanks, Greg. This has been awesome. Yeah, I, I love the time uh, we spent spend together out running, and yeah, thanks for this today. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, good times. All right, man. Well, we'll be in touch about getting out for a run soon, and take care. And good luck on your on your half this weekend, Greg. <laughs> Thanks. I, I could use it. We'll see how it goes. All right. Take All care. Right, Bye-bye. Take care, man. Bye-bye. Ideas shared are better than things because they are timeless. They burrow into our consciousness like warm puppies and change us, sometimes for the better. Fierce conversations, many, many good things. I'm a book hoarder. I read a lot, but I can't keep up with the rate at which I acquire books. I'll routinely have five to ten recommended books sitting in a pile mocking me. It's like trying to bail the ocean with a teaspoon. There are so many good works of substance out there, especially now in the digital age. I'm like a kid in a candy store with insubstantial willpower. I have had a book sitting on my Kindle for many months now by Susan Scott called Fierce Conversations that I got an opportunity to start reading. 
over the last couple of weeks. I'm only a third done with it, but I have already been smacked around by a bunch of holy cow moments where what she says totally resonates with something I'm feeling or thinking about. And another challenge I have is that I have the old Kindle, so highlighting and taking notes is almost impossible. But hey, it was only 75 bucks. This book was giving me so many wow thoughts that I actually had to dig my notebook out and start taking pen and paper notes so I wouldn't lose the thoughts. I was originally drawn to this book because of the premise of how to have hard conversations with people. Like most people, I don't like having hard conversations and avoid them by nature. But I have learned over the years in business and in life that these are the good conversations. I had to learn that if I was uncomfortable, then something of substance was happening, and that's a good thing. What I was expecting was a business book. What I found, and this is becoming a common theme, was a reassessment of self and the way you have to change your thinking to have these meaningful conversations. I also like to digest these type of books. When you find a good, thoughtful book of substance, you can't burn through it like the latest Janet Ivanovich novel. You have to wade carefully and take breaks to digest the lumps of revelation. This means you can't read them per se. You more study them, like Thoreau or Seneca. Each sentence is cause for reflection. And this drives me nuts because there's ten more just like them taunting me. But here are some waypoints of interest that I found in this book so far. Quote, Death and success both happen one conversation at a time. End quote. In our world, we have a dearth of fierce conversations, meaningful conversations. Each time we avoid a fierce conversation, we're creating a slow death for that relationship. Each time we engage in that fierce conversation, we are building a successful relationship. These fierce conversations are the moments of truth in our lives, and we have to treat them as such. Quote, courage comes from the old French for heart, end quote. These conversations take courage. They take emotional engagement and ownership. They require a deep personal investment in the conversation itself. It has to come from the heart. Quote, a man goes to the Zen master. The master says, do you want a cup of tea? But as the master is pouring the tea, he keeps pouring as the cup fills and then overflows. And when the man protests, the master replies, come back to me when you are empty. End quote. You cannot learn unless you're open to learn. What is it about yourself that is keeping you from having these meaningful conversations? Why would you rather suffer a slow death by hiding from them? Like everything else, fierce conversations start with you, not the person you are conversing with. And here I'll depart to another thoughtful book I'm reading, one sentence at a time. It's When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron. In it, she teaches that when you find yourself in a conversation that is uncomfortable, you have to rejoice because you have found something. You need to step back and examine what it is about this conversation that is affecting you. You have to be in the now of the conversation, and in doing so, you will learn about yourself from it. Quote, Values versus Behavior, end quote. Values are what we hold on to most strongly. Values are the important things that drive behaviors. In a fierce conversation, you have to declare your values. These are the bedrock of how you approach the conversation and how you see the world. If there is a gap between your values and your behavior, it freaks you out. When your reality doesn't match your values, you can end up in a rudderless drift and malaise. If you find yourself directionless, it's because you let your reality drift from your values. Quote, 
The problem is not the mission statement. End quote. This is funny, because we see this all the time. Companies create mission statements, but those statements have to align with the company's values. If there's a disconnect, then there's no integrity and the company is weak and it won't be able to survive coming disruptions. One way to diagnose your current malaise is to write down your core values and run a, a quote, integrity scan to see if they are out of alignment with your reality and your behavior. If you have an integrity outage in your relationship, in your company, in your life, you have to answer the question, what must I do to clean this up? How do you get them back into alignment? Quote, <laughs> I have not yet witnessed a spontaneous recovery from incompetence, end quote. What I take from this is it's always about people. I have found this true so many times in my career. At the bottom of every success and every challenge are people. And once you find that person that is out of alignment, you have to have a fierce conversation with them. Avoiding it doesn't help you or them. Quote, as a leader, you get what you tolerate. End quote. Many times we are clear in our own heads about the behavior and the results we're looking for, but we do a poor job of communicating that. People need communication. They need to be clearly told what is expected, what the parameters are, what the shared values are, and what the goal is. Otherwise, you get drift. You get drift in an employee and you get drift in your relationships. Quote, hire attitude, train skill, end quote. You know, hiring is such a black art. I've been doing it for years, but it's so critical to success and at the same time so risky. The only thing that truly works is to hire on attitude because you can tip, typically you can teach the skills. So those are just some of the snippets that I pulled out of this leadership book masquerading as a business book. I can't wait to get to some of the practical and tactical exercises that must be coming to forward the practice of fierce conversations in my own life. I know I'm going to sit down and have some fierce conversations with the people I love. Those conversations aren't going to be about me or my agenda. They're going to start with my core values and who I am. This is the end, my only friend. No safety or surprise. The end. We'll never pass this way again. The end. That was a good one, bud. Hey, put that Nutella down. We're at the end of another Run Run Live podcast, and this has been episode 4-306. If you want to join us this year for the Groton Road Race on April 26th, but are unfortunately waylaid in some unfortunate place like Nome, Alaska or Murmansk, it's okay. I have set up a virtual race category so you can register, run with us, and run with us in spirit. Send us your finishing times and we'll put them in the results. And we'll send you a bib and one of our super popular wearable art shirts that, as you know, by popular demand, are on a high-quality tech shirt this year. The website has all the details. www.grottonroadrace.com And if you're thinking, oh shucks, Chris, you're just shilling shirts, well, then you're missing the point. You need to go find a local road race that you can get involved in. It's a privilege and it's an honor to be able to work with the community and the high-quality people of the race committee to bring this wonderful event out each spring. It's an opportunity for us to create something that we can be proud of, that supports the things that we believe passionately in. And that's all I have to say about that. Speaking of giving back, I've got a present for you. Yeah, I do. And I want to give you a copy of my new book. It's called Marathon BQ. And it's my manifesto on training and qualifying and racing the Boston Marathon over the last 20 years. I'm proud of this book and I want you to read it and enjoy it. So here's the deal. If you want a copy, you can either 
join my email list, make a donation to my Hoyt Fund, or leave me a book review on Amazon Kindle. If you think that's something you'd be interested in doing, then shoot me an email, and I'll send you a copy. Simple as that. You can see all the details on that at my lovely website, MarathonBQ.com. To take you out, I want to geek out a little bit on rules of thumb. Our lives are filled with rules of thumb. An apple a day. Eight hours of sleep. Eight glasses of water a day. 20-mile long runs. The 10% rule. These are all rules of thumb. To give you a ballpark answer to a complex problem. You have to be careful because rules of thumb are not specific to you as an individual. In optimization science, rules of thumb are called heuristics. People make up heuristics to simplify complex problems. For any specific individual, for example, what is the optimal amount of sleep I should get is actually a very personal and complex answer. And that changes with time and health and age. It's too hard to solve. So we default to the rule of thumb, eight hours. Our brains build heuristics or gravitate towards existing heuristics to find shortcut solutions to these complex problems. Heuristics are valid solution approaches. They don't find the perfect solution or the best solution, but they get an answer quickly. And it's usually a feasible answer. It works. It's the 80% fit. It's the good enough. Now, mixed in with these heuristics are old wives' tales, masquerading as rules of thumb. They seem to make sense, but there's no evidence that they're true. Like, don't go out in the rain, you'll catch cold. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I love running in the rain. And my wife is full of these old wives' tales. <laughs> Parading as rules of thumb that she inherited from her mother and were passed down, no doubt, through mothers across the ages, starting with witch doctors in the forest 50,000 years ago. My point is that when we're spouting these rules of thumb and similar tall tales, we announce them as fact. And that can get you in trouble, especially as an athlete. What works for everybody may not work for you, you need to test out those assumptions on your own machine and see what works and adjust accordingly. Or to summarize, as I used to say in the 60s, question authority in all its forms. I wasn't around, well, I guess I was around the 60s, but I wouldn't have been questioning authority. I was too young. And as you are considering whether or not what you always believe to be true may or not be, I'll see you out there. And then... He thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. No, I gotta, I gotta add something there.